This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Please, this morning we are turning in the Word of God to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, and Luke, chapter 12. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, first of all, uh, reading verse 29 and 30 and 31. So the last few verses of Matthew, chapter No, not the last few verses. Those few verses of Matthew chapter 10. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And then in Luke chapter 12. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? Not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Sparrows were sold cheaply in the marketplace. Copper coin would buy you two. Two copper coins would buy you five. One was thrown in for free. A sparrow is not a majestic bird like an eagle. It's not graceful like a swan. It's not colorful like a peacock. Cannot sing like a nightingale. Cannot hover like a hummingbird. It's just a nondescript little bird. It draws no attention to itself. It has no wow factor as far as a world of birds are concerned. It's not an endangered species. It has no special status. You would rarely ever even give it a second look. And the fifth sparrow is even worse. At least the other sparrows had some worth. (laughs) Two copper coins. But the fifth sparrow was just a freebie. It was just a giveaway. It was virtually worth nothing. Now, if I was that fifth sparrow and I could talk, I think I would say, I must be worthless. I have no value. I'm just an afterthought. I'm just a throwaway. Did you ever feel like a fifth sparrow? Did you ever feel that you were the least of all? That you were the odd one out? that you were of no real significance, you were of little value. But Jesus said, you are of more value than many sparrows. Where do you get your value from? From others' assessment of you? What others think about you? Or comparing yourself with others? Because when you do, then oftentimes others seem to be worth something to somebody, but not you. There seems to be some value to their lives, but not much to yours. 
In 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to be king over Israel. Because Saul, God had bypassed him. God had laid him aside. God had finished with him as king. Now he wanted to raise up another king. And whenever Samuel went to the house of Jesse, he got all of his sons to be passed before him. And Eliab was a tall, handsome young man. And as soon as Samuel saw him, he said, surely, surely, this is, surely this is the one. This has to be the one. And God says, no, I've refused him. For man looks at the outward part, but God looks at the heart. And then Abinadab came before him. And again, even though he was a prophet, but he got it wrong. Again, he thought, surely this must be the one. And God says, no, not him. I haven't chosen him. And so seven sons passed before Samuel, and God chose none of them. Samuel said to Jesse, have you any more sons? Well, he says, there's just the lad. There's just the lad. He's just out there looking after the sheep. Jesse hadn't for one second contemplated that David could be the one. He was like the fifth sparrow. He was the runt of the litter. He was just looking after the sheep. Samuel says, bring him. And as soon as he stood before Samuel, God said, he's the one. Anoint him. He's the one. I think, I think David was the eighth sparrow in that case, to be technically right. In Judges chapter 15, you remember how Gideon, Gideon was in the wine press, he was threshing out the corn, he was hiding from the Midianites, the raiding parties of the Midianites would come at harvest time and steal their harvest. And there he was, hiding, thrashing out the bit of corn for his family. And the angel of the Lord comes to him in Judges 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an orpa that belonged to Joash the Abias right, while his son Gideon thrashed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles? Why did which your fathers told us about, saying, why did, not the Lord bring, why did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not, I not sent you? Now listen, verse 15. So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He felt like a fifth sparrow of little value, useless, worthless, but yet this was the one that God had chosen 
to lead Israel out of a difficult period. And God raised Gideon up to be a mighty warrior. God raised him up to be a man of God. In spite of how he felt about himself, in spite of how he felt about his social standing, even within his own family, he felt he didn't amount to hardly anything, the least of the least. And yet he was the one that God had chosen. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, speaking of King Saul again, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, it tells us here in verse 17, remember how that Saul was out looking for his father's asses that were lost and he couldn't find them and the servant was with him. He said, well, there's a prophet here. Let's talk to the prophet. Maybe he'll help us. Little did they know that that was in the providence of God that those asses would be lost and they would find the prophet. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord, saw, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me where is the seer's house? And Samuel answered and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your father's house? Another one. You're the one that God's chosen. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite? of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, which is true, and my family the least of all the families of Benjamin, which was probably true. Why then do you speak like this to me? Hadn't much an opinion about himself. Sure he hadn't. He says, I'm the least. Just like Gideon felt, I'm the least of the least. Why in the world would God choose me? I'm nothing. Here am I looking for my father's lost donkeys. That's all I'm doing. And now you're telling me I'm going to be king over Israel? It just did not compute in his mind. He just could not take that in. But God had chosen him. And God raised him up to be the king. And would to God that he had maintained that attitude. Would to God he had stayed humble in God's sight. But he didn't. Now... Saul actually was head and shoulders above all the men of Israel. He was a tall, tall man and probably looked every inch a regal king. But as he went on in his kingship and his ministry before God doing that, he became puffed up and he became proud and arrogant and hard. And he taxed the people till they were squeaking I mean, he wasn't a good king at all. And he got to the place where God said, enough, enough, I'm finished with you. I'm going to anoint a new king. That's when David was anointed. And at one point, Samuel had to go and break the news. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 17, and Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? When you were little in your own eyes, were you not 
the head of the tribes of Israel. And so, I don't know how you think of it yourself, but we should be humble people. We should be humble people, but not a false humility. We should recognize what God has given us and how he has gifted each one of us with certain gifts and abilities and talents to use for his glory. But even with that, we still should be humble. And that was the problem, of course, with King Saul. He lost that humility that he had at the beginning. The Lord Jesus was really good at reaching out to the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the outcast, the rejects, the broken, the helpless, the hopeless. He's really good at that. The ones who felt they were nothing. Do you remember the leper came to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will. I want to. And then he reached out and he touched him and said, be thou made clean. He touched him. If that man wanted anything in life, it was somebody to touch him. For from the moment the priest had announced that he had leprosy, nobody had touched him. If he was married, not his wife. If he had children, not his children. Not his family, not his friends. No one. Anybody would have been afraid to get near the man. And yet Jesus, knowing all that, and could have spoke the word and just hated him without touching, but he reached out and he touched him. Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, Every day for years he sat at the curbside begging. And hundreds and hundreds of people walked past him, not even giving the time of day. The odd person might have threw the odd coin at his feet to get a meal for that day. That was his life. Everybody just bypassed him. But when he heard that Jesus was coming past, he shouted and shouted and shouted and Jesus brought him and Jesus healed him the beggar the outcast the reject of society that nobody wanted that nobody cared about but Jesus cared about him the demonized man in Gadara remember how Jesus took that special journey over Galilee to get to him and when he got there he was living in a cemetery he was naked he was cutting himself with sharp stones the townspeople from time to time would go out and try to try to capture him and tie him up because they were frightened of him and he would break their chains he had supernatural strength he terrorized that whole area nobody would want to get near that man nobody would want to deal with him People would be scared to walk past that cemetery. Could you imagine if there was a, a funeral in there? No wonder they wanted to tie him up. But yet Jesus made that journey and he set him free. He set him free. And he made sure there was clothes on his back. By the time he finished with him, that man had got his dignity back. That man could rejoin society and maybe his family. The woman that was taken in adultery 
Remember how they trailed her through the town and they took her right into the temple to the court of the woman where Jesus was teaching and they just flung her down at his feet? The humiliation, the embarrassment, the stigma, the awfulness of that in front of the whole city. And yet Jesus in his mercy forgave her, but then he says, go and sin no more. And so all these were broken people. They were hopeless. They were helpless. They weren't worth much. They were little value to society or their community or even their own families. Who assessed their value? Others? Themselves? Didn't amount to much. Sure it didn't. They weren't worth much to anybody. Talk about being fifth sparrows. But to Jesus, they were of more value than many sparrows. Every single one of them counted with the Lord. What does the Lord see in a sparrow anyway? No bird is more common than a sparrow. In every country I have ever been in, I have seen the sparrow. You never hear anybody saying... <laughs> Oh, I've just seen the most beautiful sparrow today. Did you ever hear anybody say that? Did you ever hear anybody saying, Do you know what I spotted today? A sparrow. No. We never even look at them. We notice the robin. We notice the greenfinch, the goldfinch, or the blue tit, or the wagtail. We notice those all right. But we never look twice at the sparrow. But God does. Jesus said he sees every sparrow that falls. Every one of them. I said to somebody the other day, I forget who it was, we were talking about things. And you think of all the millions and millions and millions of birds that are flying around. But you rarely see a dead one. Except it's not down by a car or something like that, or somebody shoots it. But you rarely ever see a dead one. Why is that? Where do they go to die? They go down to the hedgerows and they go there and hide and they die. Vermin, vermin, of course, would get them after that, but we never see them. You never see the sparrow that dies unless you see its feathers in your garden where a hawk has got it, but you never see them. But God sees them. Jesus says, every single sparrow that falls, my heavenly Father sees it. You are of much more value than many sparrows. In life's grand scheme of things, when it's all over, what footprint will we leave behind? What will be our sphere of influence? Outside a few family and friends, what difference will our individual lives make in the grand scheme of things? We're not in the corridors of power. We're not captains of industry. We have no worldwide ministry. Nobody will probably be singing our songs or reading our books. Our name will not be in the history books. It'll be in Facebook. It's probably all it will be. But not in the history book. Most it will be written about. Here's a sobering thought. Most it will be written about us. will be in our obituary or a headstone. And if all that seems very negative and dire, that's the reality for most of us. That's how the world will measure us. 
Maybe that's how we will measure ourselves. But that's not God's measuring stick. God is a different measuring stick for us. What do you think of John the Baptist? John the Baptist in Scripture was a tremendous man. He was a very brave man. And he burst onto the scene and he shook a nation. And he only had one message. He only preached one thing, repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That's all he preached, only one sermon. And the whole nation was shaken. And he shook and shocked a king when he rebuked him for his adulterous lifestyle. Here's what Jesus said about him. Matthew 11, 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of woman, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. As far as Jesus was concerned, he was greater than Elijah and Elisha. He was greater than all of the prophets, all of the patriarchs. He was greater than all of them. Can you imagine that? Greater than all of them. But then he said, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. <laughs> Isn't that a shock? He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When it came to Old Testament figures, as far as Jesus was concerned, John the Baptist outweighed all of them. Why was that? Because all of those prophets prophesied about Christ to come. Even some of them prophesied about John to come, the forerunner. But they prophesied that Christ would come. But John was the one who was there when he came. John was the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. All the rest of them could only think about it and prophesy about it. John said, Here he is. Let me introduce you to him. Here he is right now. What a ministry that was. What a privilege he had. And yet Jesus says, notwithstanding all of that, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does he mean by that? Not greater spiritually, not greater having more determination, not greater being braver, but greater in that we have the privilege. See, John never really got to live out a life of grace. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. He hadn't died for mankind yet. But on the, opposite, the other side of the cross where we live is far, far, far better than anything John would ever have or any of the prophets would ever have or the patriarchs would ever have. Our ministry, in a sense, is even greater because we can share the gospel. We can share the good news to a lost and dying world. That's what we can do. And that's a greater ministry than anybody has ever had. So the least of us, in that sense, is greater than even him, who is greater than the rest of them. See the privileged position God has placed us in? Aren't you glad you were born in the time of grace? The mercy of God that reached out to us. 
in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not. That's a lot of fifth sparrows there, isn't it? The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. It is true, of course, that the kingdom of God has always had exceptional people. People that's been highly gifted, has had great ability. The apostle Paul was exceptional. And with his tremendous forensic mind, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Even Peter says, Paul says some things hard to understand. He had such a mind. He was a scholar on fire for God. He was uncommonly brave and bold when it came to preaching the gospel in the face of his enemies. Even when he spoke before Felix the governor, it was so strong a message that Felix's knees began to knock. He trembled, it says. He literally, his knees were knocking. Such was the effect that he had on that governor. So down through the long history of the church, there have been many highly talented individuals, whether they be preachers or songwriters or musicians or theologians or missionaries, their names will go down in history. Every preacher in this country, worth their salt, will read what C. H. Spurgeon wrote, who's long since dead, but his writings covers every generation even though the style's a bit old style, but the truth of it is just tremendous. God gifted that man when he was just a young man. Well, just literally a young man, about 19 or 20, he was preaching to thousands. He had a mega church in his 20s, a mega church, can you imagine? <laughs> he had like five, 6,000 people come to his church when he was just in his 20s. People would queue outside and then he began to print his sermons and they went all over the world and they're still in circulation to this day. So down through the centuries in the church, God has had highly gifted individuals that he's been pleased to use for his glory. But the reality is that most believers will be seen simply as fifth sparrows, but not to God. Every sparrow counts with God. You are of more value than many sparrows. So if you're sitting here today and you're looking around at others and you think, I wish I could sing like her. I wish I could preach like him. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. I, if I only had that. And you keep thinking that, you certainly will feel like this, this sparrow. That God has got a plan for you. God has got a role for you. 
fifth sparrow may not seem much to anybody else, but it means a lot to God. You're a vital part of the body of Christ, and he's got a role for you to play. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, Paul writes, For as the body is one, and as many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, but all be made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has sent the members, each one of them in the body, just as it ple as he pleased. And if they are, were all one member, then where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and under and unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. That there should be no schism in the body, but that all the members should have the same care for one another. For if one member suffers, then all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Members individually. Just the way that God made this body to be interconnected, that every single part has a role to play. And we know that if just one of those parts of the body is not playing its role, then it's trouble physically for us, isn't it? And so Paul says the church is like this, that every person has a role to play within the church, within the kingdom of God, every single one. Every joint supplies, he says in another place. Every joint supplies. So what are you supplying? Every joint supplies. You supplied some worship this morning, didn't you? You come by your attendance. You supply that. You supply fellowship. You supply so many things to the body of Christ because you're an integral, vital part of it. That's why it's important for us all to find our role and do it to the best of our ability. It may not be an upfront role, maybe behind the scenes role, but it's all vitally important. Some parts of the body are seen, some are hidden, but they're all important, aren't they? Can't see your skeleton but you'd be a big blob of jelly without it, wouldn't you? <laughs> we need every bone. We need it all to be doing what it's supposed to do. It's all dependent one on the other. And so this morning, fifth sparrows, you are vitally important to God's kingdom. Not one of you goes unnoticed as far as the Father is concerned. He sees every single one of us. Amen? Lord God, we thank you that each of us is important to you. We thank you for the privilege that we have 
to be part of your church and the kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you have been merciful and gracious to each of us. And help us, Lord, to be humble, to realize that anything we have is because you gave it. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. So we thank you for your grace and mercy today. Now help us, Lord, to walk in this kingdom knowing that we have a part to play. We're not an ulceran. We're not a, a, a freebie, a giveaway, a throwaway. But each of us, Lord, is important in your reckoning. And so we give you thanks for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.